Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. Thanks for choosing to listen to this podcast. If you're new to it, there's loads to catch up on. Such a huge range of topics covered throughout the last few years. Do check out our back catalogue. This week, my guest is Dr. Aristea Fotopoulou, a UKRI Innovation Fellow, a HRC Leadership Fellow, who is also the Postgraduate Research Coordinator in the School of Media. Aristea focuses on social transformations that relate to digital media and data-driven technologies. So think wearable technology like AI, uh, Siri and Alexa. Um, look, thanks so much for coming on, Aristea. Lots to talk about. Should we start by getting to know you as a person a little bit better first? So what's your background and, and can you give us a little bit of a, a whistle-stop tour of your career so far? Yeah, hello Richard and thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very glad to be here with you. Um, yes, my, um, my uh, background is quite interdisciplinary. So I started out um, in science, I started uh, studying physics at an undergraduate level, uh, but I never could leave my love for the arts behind. So um, I continued to train um, in arts and design. I trained as an animator, both in 2D and 3D animation. Um, and then I moved on to work in the creative industry as a digital artist for a while. Uh, and that was mainly in Greece. Um, and as I worked there and um, realized the conditions were not particularly a good fit for me. Uh, so I decided to come back to education. I got training in social sciences um, and this is where my research career begins. I, um, I did a PhD in media and cultural studies, um, and I particularly focused on digital media, digital technologies, and their meaning for activism. And I was particularly interested in gender and sexuality activism, so feminist and queer activism in particular. Um, and um, progressively, I became more interested in um, in other issues like well-being um, and health. I um, I looked into uh, things like the quantified self movement, so people who self track for well being. Um, and, um, you know, I looked at the use of Fitbits, for example, and apps that people use for running and for, um, you know, monitoring sleep or um, their diet and things like that. Um, and, um, and this is where I progressively, you know, started. Uh, being more interested in in uh, health and and well-being. Mm -hmm. Cool, and we're going to cover a lot of that in a little bit. Um, we're going to get stuck in some of that research in just a moment. But you've taught some courses at the university, and now focus on PhD supervision and uh, more full-time your research. So, for those looking at doctoral study, how would you encourage them to choose the University of Brighton? Yeah, so the University of Brighton is um, a fantastic place for someone to choose for their PhD study. Um, I would definitely encourage students who are interested in the arts and in media to join the PhD in media and arts. Um, we have a fantastic connection with community organizations in Brighton and Hove. Um, and there's also a doctoral program that um, um, students can follow uh, to get training in uh, postgraduate research methods. Um, and of course, if uh, someone is interested in um, getting more 
under their, their belt in terms of um, a master's degree, a taught master's degree, I would definitely encourage them to come to a degree that I led as a course leader um, a few years ago, which is called uh, Digital Media, Culture and Society. But of course, if their interest is in gaming or in you know media production, there are, there is a wealth of um, a maze offered at the University of Brighton that uh, they could follow. And mm -hmm. the creative sector and the digital sector in in Brighton um, and the southeast is very developed. It's the most developed in the UK. Uh, so definitely the place to be. Mm, absolutely. Um, but let's get stuck into your research. We'll talk about robots and AI and wearable technology a little bit later on. First, though, the Art Data Health Project. Let's get stuck into that first of all. Can you tell us what it's about and, and how it evolved? Yes. So this is funded by the AHRC um, and it's a UK RI innovation leadership project. Um, and uh, the idea of the project is to create a, a very interdisciplinary interface between the arts and science. Um, and what we're what I've tried to do is to create a bridge between um, uh, personal experiential stories, um, um, the, the creative um, expression of these stories, but also an understanding and a training in data science and data analytics. Um, so the, the point of this is to bring together community organizations, um, artists, uh, but also academics and researchers um, to work with health data and to try to find ways to understand and work with them in a creative way. And the aim is that, and the, the, the idea is that through this work, through this um, creative engagement with the data, people gain both skills in data analytics and digital skills, um, but also skills in creativity, in arts. And this, these skills, I think, are particularly um, important for for people who come from marginalized communities, for people who are um, in in groups that have perhaps not not necessarily been so much familiar with the arts. They're not perhaps the people you would expect to to have an art degree or to be going to see work in galleries. Um, or people who perhaps are excluded from um, you know, participating in what we think is like given, like, you know, joining Twitter or other social media. There are people who are older, uh, older people or people who are quite poor, uh, even in Brighton and Hove, we have quite a few areas that are particularly deprived. Um, and these people may not have access to a mobile phone, for example. So we have people who are um, you know, particularly disadvantaged. And um, I've worked in partnership with the NHS uh, Clinical Commissioning Group, but also the group, the public health group um, of the Brighton and Hove City Council to identify um, these, these communities. Um, and I've partnered with a few charities um, and third sector organizations. I've worked with um, RISE, the Domestic Abuse um, charity, uh, but also with the Wellsbourne Centre, the health centre in Whitehawk, and a few other charities. Um, and we've brought together people uh, to, do, um, to do workshops. Um, 
Of course, we were interrupted by COVID. Many of our creative workshops had to be cancelled. Um, and we tried to find ways to uh, to change the direction of the of the project. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that because of COVID, obviously, it does highlight the importance of projects like this, like well-being projects like this. And you can't have envisaged that this pandemic was going to happen. But yeah, how has it changed the project? Because um, we'll talk about the fringe events in a moment. But I imagine it's given several new angles to work on instead. Absolutely. So COVID has been, you know, has had a major impact um, on people's lives. Um, and um, what we've tried to do because we had our, our workshops cancelled uh, because of social distancing measures, obviously, um, I had to rethink the direction of the project and particularly the participatory aspects of the project. Because the participatory aspect was quite central for the project, I tried to find ways to um, to make this happen and to enable this um, through digital media in the same way that everybody did, you know, try to use uh, Zoom or other other platforms for um, for meetings. But of course, when we're talking about marginalised communities who don't even have a phone and who are struggling to to get food on the table, then that's not really a priority for them. So um, you know, um, recruiting participants uh, became became quite quite an issue there. So I had to rethink the direction. Of, of the project in more substantial ways. Um, so what we did with um, with Anna Dimitriou, for example, with shielding, um, the art installation was to focus particularly on the impact of um, of COVID nineteen for um, for for women affected by domestic abuse. <laughs> and very early on, um, when the lockdown started. There were all these news that uh, that came up about uh, the rise of domestic abuse cases that were being reported, um, and this is when I thought, and also in discussion with Anna, that this is something that we need to be looking at. Um, in, since you know we couldn't be working closely with Rise anymore to create the artwork, um, and this is exactly what happened with that project. So with Shielding, uh, which you mentioned, this is uh, being um, hosted at the Brighton Fringe at the moment. Um, we set up the the work uh, physically in the venue that it was going to be presented, which was the Regency Townhouse. Um, and instead of having people uh, to see the, um, the work, we, we did a video where we talked about the work with Anna. And this video is available online um, on the artdatahealth.org website at the moment. Um, and um, the one thing that, that actually, you know, we, we managed to do in a participatory way was to create some art kits that we sent out um, electronically to staff members of RISE, where they could just create, um, use a template to create a little room. Um, Anna played with the idea of um, Virginia Woolf's uh, Room of One's Own, um, her famous essay about how women and particularly women writers and creators and artists need a place and a room of, of of their own a place a space where they can um develop their thinking and writing and artistic practice 
Um, and we asked, we used this as a provocation and we asked staff members of RISE to cut out the template and create like a physical model of a room and how they, you know, they understand um, that that room as a, as a room of their own. What is it that they would include in there? And we had some quite interesting and uh, lovely um, um, contributions where people were putting like, um, you know, a big window to the seafront or a big screen or a little a little dog in there or their favorite books, things like that, things that were important for them. Um, and that was particularly important in at the time when people were really during lockdown really um, condensed and you know really most people didn't have the space to to be on their own. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and the the installations is quite powerful, really, um, for Mana um, and the beds, and it's um, it's a topic like you said at the start of the pandemic. It was focused on quite a lot. I, I don't know. I haven't really seen a lot more since then you know the first we it was it was came up as a topic you know as something that would be this is going to be a real problem throughout the pandemic throughout lockdown um but i'm not sure we've seen a lot at the back end of that when we've sort of when we sort of started to come out of lockdown it's a really important issue to be to be highlighting Yes, it's a very powerful work um, and what Anna has done was is to try to um, represent the statistics and the idea of the 30% rise in cases of domestic abuse um, in her work and she has created these miniature uh, beds um, uh, that she has laid out in space uh, that are inspired by the Wuhan uh, hospitals and the first, um, the first hospitals that were set up during the lockdown in, in China. Um, um, and I think um, part of this was, um, and the idea behind this was that um, the participants would also contribute by telling their stories, telling their personal stories through doing little bits of work for, for the installation. And this is the bit that unfortunately at this um, in this iteration of Anna's project, wasn't um, we weren't able to do, we weren't able to to recreate. But potentially, as things ease down, perhaps in a different iteration later on, a different um, exhibition of the same project, it might be possible to do so. Yeah, sure. Um, Bright and Fringe is online this month, and it's not that's not your only project that you're involved with with Fringe. Can you tell us a bit about 104 Days Later and what people can expect from that? Yes, that's a, a little bit different um, to Anna's uh, work. So I commissioned um, a, a data designer, Caroline Bevon, and as she created a something that is called a, a scrolly, and that's an interactive scrollable um, story. It's a data story. Um, so what we've done um, is we did research um, via a survey. We, we did a survey where we collected data about people's experiences of the lockdown. Um, and this is particularly local, um, local participants in Brighton and Hove. Uh, we asked them about how, they, how the lockdown impacted them um, in various areas of their lives, uh, their mental health, their well-being, um, their financial situation, their working conditions, 
um, and we got quite a lot of rich data that are testimonies, um, audio testimonies, video testimonies, but also written testimonies. And what happened to this material was then uh, we um, combined this material with national statistics, with um, statistics from the, from the National Statistics Office, um, to create this scrollable data story. So as you scroll down, these, these testimonies uh, appear in combination with the uh, data visualization so that you get a more personal story and a more personal interpretation of what these statistics mean because numbers do not tell the whole story. That's the whole idea of the project yeah. is that although we do have the numbers and the data can help us understand COVID better, can help us understand pandemics better, they don't tell the whole story and we need to know these personal stories, these personal experiences um, to understand the, 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 the effect that, the, that this pandemic has had on people's lives. Yeah. So what are the next steps for the project? I know that you're about to go full circle with what we were talking about earlier on and, and return to some animation. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, so the third um, output of the project um, takes kind of cue from 104 days later. Um, and for this, um, I'm producing and directing a, a research film. It's a short animation film that, um, well, actually, I don't, I'm not sure I can call it an animation film because it combines live, live action filming mm -hmm. with animated elements. Um, and um, I collaborated with the immersive theatre company Hydrocracker to do this. Uh, we used their concept and their concept is the concept of before the flame goes out. Um, so they used this provocation and they asked people to hold the match and record um, while the match is burning, record how they feel about the pandemic and how they feel about what comes out of it. And this is more a story um, of hope and looking forward. Um, so it kind of complements a handful days later in a way but it's more about looking forward to the future and learning from the experience of the lockdown. So it's a hopeful story about kindness, about togetherness, um, about um, change, uh, both social change and personal change. Um, and um, for this, like you mentioned, um, I'm uh, going back to my animation roots, um, doing some of the animation um, of the film and um, I'm, you know, I'm the artistic director of the film um, because it occurred to me that, um, and I think it occurred to many people, even people who didn't have an artistic background, the lockdown uh, was an opportunity for many people to go back to creativity mm. and how creativity is very important to maintain our uh, mental health and to understand things better. Um, so it would have been um, hypocritical if I didn't do it myself for this project and if I just remained in the role of the curator and the producer. So um, I'm going hands-on uh, for, for this um, and kind of um, rediscovering my, um, my roots in art and animation. Mm -hmm. 
you need some extra long matches to tell some of those stories, I imagine, for a lot of us. Um, I, do you kind of miss doing a lot of that animation as well? You must be looking forward to getting stuck in. Absolutely, yes. I mean, um, I, I, I do I do miss it. And I'm working again with Caroline Bevon, um, who is the, an amazing um, uh, creative with a, a background in animation and design. And um, that's, that's uh, you know, we, we make a very good team for this. Um, and um, the idea is that the, the film will be launched sometime in March in a conference that will bring um, together the entire team of the project because I've had a, a very good team of, um, of advisors, academic advisors for this project. Um, uh, Professor Bobby Farsides has been my uh, mentor throughout and her help has been really, really um, immense um, for this project. Uh, but I've had a very, a very strong team of advisors and um, uh, we've had really interesting um, you know, exchanges um, about how things are going. So this, this conference in March um, is going to be an opportunity to launch the film and to get everybody together, including the participants, the people who actually, you know, um, took part in the, in the live action films. Um, and this will be um, towards the end of the project as well. Hopefully there will be some additional funding um, to do more things um, on this project. Um, I'd like to work more with filming and with animation, but also to uh, continue some of the things that uh, I wasn't able to, to do, the, create, the participatory creative um, aspects of the project uh, when we exit the, the social uh, distancing measures um, time and period. It would be really good to to be able to work with uh, with people face to face and hands on materials and uh, and stuff. Um, but I'm also hoping to um, to be able to um, to um, secure funding in order to um, award and to uh, commission more collaborations between um, artists and community organisations to look into health and well-being data um, and to advance uh, skills uh, sharing. Great. Yeah, it'd be great to see this film at the end of it. And yeah, hopefully you do get out back out to the community and you can continue that work um, in the future when we eventually uh, exit these, uh, these, these guidelines and rules that we're following at the moment. Um, you've got a lot on because you're also writing a book at the moment on feminist data studies. Can you, can you touch on that? Yeah, of course. Yes. So, so the book is um, is commissioned by Sage and is part of a, a series um, called Data Justice, um, which is um, which is initiated by the Data Justice Lab in at the University of Cardiff. Um, and the book is uh, looking at the invisibility of um, certain, again, issues around gender, race, um, class, uh, sexuality um, that are not really being tackled uh, with uh, when we talk about data um, nowadays and the invisibility of certain marginalized groups, um, how these groups are not being represented in databases, um, how perhaps algorithms are 
um, certainly biased towards certain um, groups and how this means that their issues are being neglected and their needs are being are not being met basically so I'm bringing a more of a um, um, of a perspective from feminist and queer studies and looking into data basically um, and I'm looking at quite quite a a few topics. One of the topics that I'm looking at is, of course, uh, again, data literacy and skills acquisition. Um, but I'm also looking at, like you mentioned earlier, at um, robots, um, you know, artificial intelligence um, and um, helpers like Alexa, for example, and looking at um, how these are created in a very gendered way. Um, for example, how um, how voice is being selected and how people who are using them are responding in a particular way depending on whether the voice is a female voice or a male voice for example. Mm. Let's talk about that because the, the robots AI um, it's one of the things that people find fascinating really and we're all really starting to get used to using these and um, if we go back one more step though and talk about the sort of the wearable technology first, because I think maybe people were using fitness trackers maybe a little bit before Alexa and Google Home and all that kind of stuff that we're using a lot more now. What were you um, looking into with that? Because personally, I, 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 I use a running app all the time and my watch and I analyze the data all the time and I get over obsessed with looking at comparing run, one run to another. What were you looking at? Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly my experience as well. I mean, and also many people who um, who are using this device. I mean, I am wearing my yeah. watch right now, my running Got watch right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I started looking at these um, technologies back in uh, 2013, really. Uh, when I started looking at wearable technologies and then I got some uh, funding at some point to do um, a placement and I went over to San Francisco and stayed there and work at the University of uh, California in Santa Cruz for a while um, and I did some interviews with members of the Quantified Self um, which is like an organization um, that where people do meetups and talk to each other about their experiences of monitoring and self-tracking basically. Um, and I was quite interested at that point um, at issues of privacy, um, but uh, increasingly I became more interested in how people are starting to think about themselves in a different way. So how these technologies um, in a way contribute to um, our ways of thinking and understanding ourselves so how for example we see ourselves reflected through our devices and through our data and what this means for our sense of self ourselves our identities basically um, and um, I started being a little bit more interested in how perhaps these technologies are in a way training us you know they, they become our trainers to um to show off a better self and to show off a good citizen self 
um, particularly when we're thinking about sharing data and about contribution of our data for research, for example. So when we think, okay, I'm going to allow this data to be available in a database or um, because I volunteer that or or because I don't care where my data goes. So there's been quite a few cases where data from runners in Afghanistan, for example, were available you know, to the world. And this, um, you know, this meant that there was a huge security issue for, um, for the forces there, for example. Yeah. So yeah. things like that. Um, so that's, you know, that's how I've been interested in Fitbits, more about what, it, what they mean uh, about our sense of self and how we're being perhaps trained into a particular type of person who is willing to give their data because they think they contribute to the social good in many cases, but also how the media and policy documents are perhaps using these kinds of language to encourage people to do things that maybe are not as um, safe and, and innocent as they seem, because we know now that all our data are being um, sold to third parties and basically, you know, big corporations are making lots of money from our data. It's also being contributed to certain sort of social medias, really. I mean, Strava is a good example of that, where you might, where you also, you, it, that data is almost being used to sort of show off yourself to other people and you end up comparing yourself to other people people would put runs up and all activities and they'll say, oh, that was really easy, but it was like really fast. And you know what I mean? Like, it's a very much like, um, you're trying to sell yourself to other people as well. And do you think that's kind of the case? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. It's like, you know, you're, you're putting up this persona, which is like, this is my ideal self. This yeah. is who I want to be. And uh, this is how I'm going to be part of this uh, other community of runners. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit of, a, of cre creating a, a myth for, for ourselves, like a better mm -hmm. self. Like uh, uh, some people, like some scholars have written about our data selves as a data double, like someone who is not us but is us and that this data double perhaps is being used by um you know by our bank for our credit scores um for people um you know who are trying to get a loan and this is perhaps you know where you get whether bank for example has an idea about you um or it may predict whether someone is going to have a divorce in the next few years based on their purchases. But it may also mean that there are implications that are quite negative for certain people because sometimes, you know, social services are being judged on these data. So someone may lose their benefits because of their data. Or, you know, increasingly we see that employers are looking at social media um, to judge whether to employ someone or not and of course the police are looking at social media you know so there are all, all sorts of uh, darker shades about um, what happens to our data and how um, they're being used mm. and that brings us on to the likes of Alexa Google Home Siri all the things that we ask our phones or our devices which is becoming something that you know more people are using now and it's only going to grow more i guess and it depends on how much i guess you use those devices i myself and a friend some friends of mine i think they sort of use it as just a just another 
version of the radio. Um, yeah. Just instead of turning on a radio, you just tell them to play the radio instead or, or tell them to play some music. Um, yeah. So I guess that's getting data. Uh, it's kind of getting some data for you. We've heard lots of things about whether Alexa listens in or in conversations. Um, just how safe is it to use these devices in our homes? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what, like you say, people forget that this is a listening device. And uh, again, this is the data that are being collected and there's been links to, you know, selling these kinds of data for, uh, for example, for promoting certain products, you know, via ads. Um, um, and it's, I think it's something that uh, people don't think about as necessary to provide consent to because it's there. So for example, but it is a little bit more complicated. For example, um, children uh, cannot give their consent to their data being used in this way, or our visitors in our homes cannot give their um, informed consent about their data being used when we have um, such a device on all the time. So it, it is quite quite a tricky, um, they, they are tricky devices in terms of um, how they're being used and their safety. Uh, my interest in, in this, um, and um, I have a, um, a chapter that is uh, coming out any minute now in uh, a fantastic edited book called um, Uncertain Archives. That's okay. the name of the book. So yeah, so so in this um, in this chapter um, that I've co-written with um, Tanya Kant from the University of Sussex, we're kind of making up an imaginary uh, conversation with the devices. So instead of having the devices uh, being told what to do, um, we have the devices asking us questions, uh, and we answer instead. So kind of reverting the, the power dynamic and the role and being a little bit playful in that to, um, to try to think about, um, you know, how we understand um, humanity, how we understand um, agency, that these devices actually can think or they cannot think and what it is that, you know, makes us um, human, um, and what is artificial intelligence, basically. So yeah, do read it when it comes out. <laughs> Absolutely, that's a good plug. Um, and artificial intelligence in general, for many, I guess it's quite a scary thing. It's fascinating, but it's scary because you just know it's just always going to, it, can, it literally will just keep on evolving as it learns. Um, and I guess there's always a fear that that will be used against you rather than for you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the science fiction has, you know, um, for years and years tackled this issue of artificial intelligence and there's lots of dystopian um, series like the Black Mirror that, uh, you know, that makes you think uh, that things can go horribly wrong or they're, that they're actually already going horribly wrong. <laughs> um, but I think it's uh, what I write about in the book uh, also is um, how our understanding of technology is uh, cultural and how it's shaped by what society we live in. And um, I bring the example of how things have panned out in Japan where um, innovation and robotics are quite more advanced and they're more 
um, acceptable um, in society. So um, I bring the example and the case of how uh, the Prime Minister early on, like more than 20 years ago, um, encouraged um, families to, to use robotic helpers in the house. Um, and that's quite interesting if you see how this was promoted by the Prime Minister and through, through the government um, to, in order to maintain the family, because in Japan families are extended and people live together like you know grandparents and extended uh, family live together and they they have very strong bonds family is quite important for them uh, and older people are much more important in their social unit than perhaps they are in the west um, so there the idea of um, making um, a robotic helper part of your family unit um, is more acceptable than it is here but it's also things like, you know, cultural differences, um, like um, driverless cars and what these mean and what the, you know, this, this is particularly pertinent when we think about the ethics, um, like data ethics in particular, where there are examples and research that uh, shows how the decisions about where, where um, a driverless car will go, whether it will, for example, if it loses control, will it hit a mom, mother and child or will it hit, you know, an older person? So if you pose this kind of ethical dilemma to people in Western countries like the United States or Europe, you will get different answers to, to what you will get if you pose these questions, for example, in China. So it's quite quite fascinating to think that, to understand that these, our understandings are cultural and they're shaped by, you know, the way we live um, and how technology is not, you know, something out there, but it's being shaped by, by our own thinking and our own understanding. And this is why I'm so interested in gender in particular, because, you know, our understandings of gender and what women can do, what girls can do, what men can do and what boys can do also come up and shape the technologies that we are creating. It's going to be a really fascinating book. Really looking forward to that one coming out because that would be, um, and when you, when it does, let's have a full conversation about that in a future podcast, because that would be um, really interesting oh, to get stuck into. Very glad to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, at the end of each podcast, we have a bit of fun and we go away from work, bit off topic a little bit. We, uh, we ask the same questions to, to every one of our guests. So the first question is, what advice would you give to your younger self? Ah, yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I would definitely um, tell my younger self to slow down um, and just take things easy and enjoy the ride because I definitely um, did too many things in a very short time. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, if you could pick any other subject to study at the University of Brighton, what would it be? Um, I would um, definitely try doing some creative writing course. Um, but I'd also um, do something perhaps in uh, health sciences. I'm actually at the moment doing a public health course um, to 
you know, learn, learn more about public health. Um, but I would definitely like to know more and choose a course uh, that is more in the medical um, and health sciences. Great. Uh, can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? Um, I really love the South Downs and walking in the South Downs. And I also really like the, um, the forest areas that we have around Arundel and north from Worthing. I, I really like the woods there. Yeah, cool. And if you could give visitors to Brighton, Eastbourne, the area, a tip of what to do, experience if they just had one day or, or maybe a weekend in normal circumstances, um, what might that be? Um, definitely an art trail. Um, Brighton is full of uh, small galleries and art spaces that are really worth exploring. So definitely I would um, um, I tell them to go and see some art um, and but also do perhaps uh, you know a, a, a comics and, um, and graphic novels um, trail as well we have quite a few shops and hidden gems in uh, um, comic stores uh, but also vinyl um, you know records buying records and looking at records that's definitely something I think that uh, Brighton is very uh, uh, strong. <laughs> yeah, it's great to do that. Very. Um, uh, tell us something interesting about you, which a lot of people may not know. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I did mention that I'm kind of going back to my roots um, in animation, but I also have a, a painting practice on the side. Okay. Um, and uh, which I'm kind of keeping a little bit separate to what I do as a researcher and as an academic, but I think I'm going to start uh, bringing this into my work uh, more. Now I'm, I, I like murals a lot. I do murals and mm -hmm. I do lots of um, portrait work as well. Mm. What sort of uh, style would you describe yourself as? I do figurative art and I use oils. Mm -hmm. Great. How, how long have you been doing that for? Quite a long time. I've been doing this for, um, for my entire life. <laughs> Brilliant. Cool. Not ever as a, you know, I've, I've done some exhibitions early on and I've done quite mm -hmm. a few murals as a, you know, commercially, but um, I, I, I just thought, you know, that because academic work takes and research takes so much energy and time mm -hmm. i've kind of you know left this on the side but um yeah I'm, cool. I'm doing it a little bit more now great um and if you can pick three people to host at a dinner party past or present who might they be that's an excellent question um so i'd um from the present i would have um I would have Bernadine Evaristo, the Booker Prize winner uh, last year. She wrote um, Woman, Girl, Other. Mm -hmm. um, and she's actually someone that I, um, I did a portrait of during a paint along for the artist, um, a portrait artist of the, of the year. 
uh, during lockdown um, and she sat for for the public and and she was speaking and I thought wow this this person you know I mean her book is is amazing but um, I thought as an interlocutor she's so so interesting and she would be amazing and at the dinner party definitely um, and from the past I would bring in uh, Ursula Le Guin uh, a science fiction uh, feminist writer uh, who has really um, influenced the way I think about technology and gender and sexuality. Um, and I think, again, her ideas and her way of thinking. Um, and as a speaker, she, she would also, you know, she would also be totally amazing in a din at the dinner party. And the third person would be someone... Um, uh, from the past again, um, someone also dead, um, who is a Greek screenwriter and um, um, and writer. Her name is Malvina Karali, and uh, she was uh, this extremely eloquent and beautiful speaker. Um, she was also a television personality towards the end of her life and she really shaped um, again you know the way I thought about um, being in in the public and the, the way um, that art shapes our lives and writing in particular um, and she was an amazing person who um, who died too soon. <laughs> Brilliant. Aristea, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been so great speaking to you. Hopefully we can catch up when your book comes out next year. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Bye. it for this podcast. And as I mentioned earlier, please do take a look um, through our back catalogue. There's loads there and we'll put links as well in this podcast description so you can check out some of the work that's going on at Brighton Fringe that Aristea was talking about a little bit earlier on. Thanks for listening. <laughs>